Tired of ads interrupting your gripping investigations? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Ads shouldn't be the scariest thing about true crime. Start listening by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash true crime ad free. That's amazon.com slash true crime ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Chocolates are sweet, but they don't last long. Flowers are pretty, and then they're gone. So this Mother's Day, why not give your mum the gift that keeps on giving with Ancestry DNA? Ancestry DNA is on sale now for $99, a saving of $30. Ancestry DNA won't just tell your mum where her ancestors are from, it can also pinpoint the specific regions within those countries, connecting mum to the places where her story started. Ancestry DNA lets us look back across centuries to see where her family lived and where they moved. Combined with Ancestry's massive database of official records, this can open up fascinating migration stories. Who knows? Give your mum Ancestry DNA this Mother's Day and she might even discover living relatives. I know it's possible because it happened for me. Ancestry DNA is safe, easy to use and completely private. When your mum gets the kit, she just sends back a small saliva sample using the prepaid postal box provided. In a few weeks, she'll receive an email with the links to her results. From there, your mother has control of the data and how she uses it. There could be more to your mum's story. Piece it together with Ancestry DNA, now on sale. Terms apply. It's Thursday the 1st of March 1900, two months to the day since Dr John Ashburton Thompson warned Sydney that bubonic plague was on the way. And now posters that he's authorised as New South Wales' Chief Medical Officer are going up around the city. The proclamation's headline, Prevention of Plague. The warning begins, quote, Plague is present in Sydney. It has been introduced by diseased rats and there is great danger of its spreading still further. Great efforts must therefore be at once made by municipal councils and by individual householders to kill all rats. This war must be persistently and steadily carried on. The poster explains that rats have to be killed simultaneously in healthy and infected neighbourhoods because surviving rodents will flee and possibly carry the disease to new areas. Dr. Thompson's warning urges residents to ensure rats can't get into their houses, including via defective sewers, and encourages people to deprive the pests of food by burning scraps. The posters advise the use of arsenic, traps and dogs to kill the enemy. Dead rats need to be disposed of carefully also, scalded with boiling water first to kill plague fleas and then taken with tongs to be incinerated. Dr. Thompson's poster asks people to sanitise and clean their houses inside and out. It gives instruction on the disinfecting of drains, sinks and toilets, the whitewashing of walls and ceilings, the swabbing of woodwork and floors, the removal and cleaning of carpet and rugs, and the disposal or destruction of rubbish including unused lumber. While his message is primarily for ordinary people, Dr. Thompson also places the responsibility for sanitisation squarely on the shoulders of municipal authorities. His poster declares they must, quote, regularly collect and destroy filth, sweep and flush road and other gutters under their control. 
To help prevent them shirking these responsibilities, he urges ratepayers who notice such work not being done to immediately complain to their councils. Posters proclaiming plagues certainly get people's attention, and in just a few weeks' time, a mob will panic and besiege the Board of Health building, clamouring for vaccination shots. Yet, despite the Chief Medical Officer's declaration that rats must die, New South Wales colonial politicians and their Sydney City Council counterparts are slow to act. So slow, it'll be more than a month before a serious rat-killing campaign begins. During that time, this vital work will run a poor second to a three-step sanitation policy best summed up as lockdown, washdown and knockdown. I'm Michael Adams and this is the second and final part of the Forgotten Australia episode, The Plague of 1900. After Arthur Payne was confirmed as Australia's first bubonic plague sufferer in late January 1900, there wasn't another case for a month. Then, Captain Thomas Dudley, the once notorious high seas cannibal, died in his home after a short sudden illness whose cause was discovered to be the Black Death. The next case came the very next day and this man died within days. Then, on the 1st of March, those Board of Health plague posters went up around the city. Also going up, the number of cases of plague sufferers and contacts being taken to the Maritime Quarantine Station at North Head. A Glebe produce dealer whose goods came from the infected Hutart Parker & Co wharf was the next to fall seriously ill. After that, a publican whose rat-infested hotel stood opposite that wharf. So far, all the cases had been traceable to this small part of Darling Harbour. Then, an eight-year-old Surrey Hills boy, with no known connection to the infected zone, fell seriously ill. The plague was even farther afield by the 8th of March when a two-year-old boy whose family lived in Moore Park was found to be infected. Board of Health officials discovered that his home was near a tip where rubbish from the wharves was regularly dumped. This little boy died in his house the next day. His family, including three infected siblings, was taken to the Maritime Quarantine Station. Dr. Thompson again tried to get the message through to the public that the disease was not highly communicable and that these three children had been infected not by each other or their brother, but by fleas from rats transported to the tip with rubbish from the wharves. He told the Sydney Morning Herald on the 13th of March, quote, The children were in the habit of playing about the place and raking over rags, and an examination of their bodies disclosed that the flea bite marks are as close on them as type in a newspaper. These three children would recover at the quarantine station, but Sydney cases continued to climb. From the 10th to the 17th of March, there were a dozen more infections and three more deaths. The week following, another 10 cases and another three fatalities. The last week of March saw 23 new cases and six further deaths. Faced with these ever-increasing numbers and concerned that the quarantine station might be overwhelmed, Dr Thompson had recommended that the limited resources be used in accordance with the medical evidence. He said that because there was no evidence of person-to-person -person transmission, only actual sufferers needed to be taken to the quarantine station. Further, as it hadn't been shown that houses themselves caused infection, time, money and man hours could also be conserved by only locking down residences that were demonstrably overcrowded and or filthy. However, 
The New South Wales government rejected Dr Thompson's advice. They decided that all sufferers and all contacts had to go to the quarantine station and all of their houses were to be closed and disinfected. In early March, given that most cases could still be traced back to the wharves, Dr Thompson recommended that these wharves be cleared of workers, closed down and cleansed and repaired or destroyed. The government rejected this too because it had hurt the economy. Yet wharf owners didn't help their cause at all by refusing to meaningfully carry out much in the way of rat killing and cleaning activities. And as for the government organised rat extermination, that progressed in slow and haphazard fashion. Until the middle of March, Dr Thompson's Board of Health only had a small stock of Professor Hafkeen's bubonic plague vaccination. This was used primarily to inoculate health workers. Professor Hafkeen's prophylactic, as it was called, was also offered to plague sufferers' contacts when they arrived at the quarantine station. Yet, only one in ten accepted. They might have been anti-vaxxers, but thousands of other Sydney siders wanted to be inoculated. A large supply of the vaccine arrived in Sydney in early March, and public inoculations began soon after. These were carried out on the first floor of the Board of Health office on the corner of Macquarie and Albert Streets in the centre of Sydney. Dr Thompson's policy was, quite sensibly, to prioritise people who lived in or near Darling Harbour or whose work required them to go there. Yet, this attempt at triage was almost entirely frustrated by panicky people demanding the vaccine and falsely claiming to live or work in the danger zone. At 8 in the morning on the 21st of March, more than 1,000 of these people surrounded the Board of Health building. The Board of Health secretary telephoned the police for assistance in trying to maintain order, but when the gates were opened, the mob stormed the grounds and the building. As the evening news reported, the interior stairway, quote, in a few seconds was packed with a dense and struggling mass of humanity, each pushing and surging in an effort to get one step higher. The stairway had not been designed to carry such a weight and the inevitable happened. The cedar balustrade broke. No one was hurt and the broken balustrade actually made people calm down because they saw how dangerously they were behaving. Not so the crazy mob outside. The evening news article continued, quote, the crowd outside the gates still continued their efforts to gain admission, men roughly pushing women and each other in the attempt to get near the gates until many of the quieter or less nervous ones left and went home in disgust. Dr Ashburton Thompson and the various officers who arrived each had to fight his way in at considerable personal risk and difficulty. This public desperation was born out of the continuing misconception that the bubonic plague was highly communicable, despite Dr Thompson taking every opportunity to communicate the science as it was understood. He later reported to the New South Wales government of that first big supply of Professor Hafkeen's vaccine, quote, a portion of the general public were determined to be inoculated at all hazard, though they stood in no known danger of contracting the disease, and very much of this first consignment consequently was wasted. Just as a quick flash forward, when a second, larger supply of vaccine arrived in May, public inoculations would be carried out in the basement of Sydney's town hall. But relatively few people turned up to get jabs. 
Dr. Thompson was to write, quote, All panic or even lively interest in the continued prevalence of the disease had died out in the public mind. If that sounds familiar, then so will this. The complacency of the Sydney public in mid-1900 actually coincided with the peak of infections and deaths. But back on the 21st of March, the day that the mob demanded vaccines they'd soon forget about, Dr Thompson suggested to New South Wales Premier William Lyne that a special plague committee be formed. Dr Thompson said that if leading community members were included in this organisation, they might be able to allay popular fears, and that would then allow the Board of Health to get on with the job of saving lives without having to deal with mass panics. Premier Lyne didn't act on Dr Thompson's proposal. While council and colonial government authorities had been slow to kill rats, reluctant to close wars, and rejected formation of a special committee to deal with the plague, from the 23rd of March, they did embark on their three-pronged sanitation policy that would lock down parts of Sydney, wash them down, and, if necessary, knock them down. A large area comprising the wharves of eastern Darling Harbour and parts of the rocks was declared under quarantine. Residents had two choices. Go to the quarantine station or stay locked in the quarantine zone until it was declared clean. Few, if any, residents elected to leave. With the support of the New South Wales government, Sydney Council declared it was deploying an army of inoculated workers to inspect and disinfect house to house, lane to lane, street to street. This army would at first be 500 men strong, though it had swelled to 1,000 and eventually to 3,000. The goal was sanitation, but authorities also believed this campaign would drive rats to the harbour rather than allowing them to escape into the city. Given how slowly the New South Wales government and Sydney Council were still moving on direct rat extermination, it was ironic that Premier Lyon was now quoted as saying... Time is the essence of the whole thing. Barriers were put across Sydney streets to stop traffic and keep residents inside the quarantine zone. These barriers were manned by police, whose numbers were increased after early reports that people had been breaching the regulations. A Daily Telegraph story from the 28th of March gives a good idea of what it was like in those first days. Quote, 700 men, including able-bodied residents of the quarantine area, are now engaged in a systematic overhaul of the block bounded by Kent Street, Margaret Street, Sussex Street and Erskine Street. All old or suspicious wooden erections and floors are being demolished and the filth of years removed. And the general state of things disclosed is so shocking as to be infinitely worse than the most pessimistic sanitary officer could have imagined. The rotten, filth-saturated woodwork is being destroyed by fire. Just in this one zone, the population was said to comprise 700 men, women and children. Their living conditions had been hellish. Quote, in some cases, it is found necessary to remove from backyards several inches of slimy, evil-smelling earth in which are embedded all kinds of household rubbish and dead animals. This earth, after being disinfected, is put out on the street and thence taken to punts for removal to sea. Every possible effort is made to mitigate the terrible surroundings. 
carbolic acid, sulfuric acid, lime, and every known disinfectant fill the air with pungent odour, and the whitened thoroughfares are strongly suggestive of a recent snowstorm. The burning of condemned woodwork also acts as a deodoriser. Every possible place for rats is rooted out, and hundreds of rodents are fast disappearing, possibly to the wharves, which will receive attention when the streets have earned a certificate of health. There it was, in a major newspaper, the blithe acknowledgement that this campaign was causing the flight of rats, which were likely spreading the plague even further. To its credit though, the Daily Telegraph article also noted that the quarantine zone residents weren't necessarily to blame for their environment, which was the result of years of neglect. Quote, As the work of cleansing and purification proceeds, the marvel grows that a condition of affairs so dangerously insanitary should have remained undiscovered or, if known, been permitted for a moment. It's also instructive to learn how the Daily Telegraph referred to these residents as prisoners. Quote, Complete arrangements have been made provisioning the prisoners, voluntary and otherwise, and now no word of complaint is heard. It's actually impossible to believe that none of these prisoners complained about their conditions. Residents of the Rocks and Darling Harbour were receiving Board of Health notices telling them they had 24 hours in which to agree to carry out cleaning and disinfecting of their premises. If they didn't do it, it'd be done for them and at their expense, and their houses would be closed until further notice. Yet, this wasn't just a cleansing program. Architect and consulting engineer George McCready supervised the clearing of the area, which meant knocking down buildings that were deemed beyond repair. George McCready employed a photographer, whose pictures include the famous one of a group of men posed with a pile of dead rats. But the bulk of the images the photographer made were of the appalling conditions that residents had to endure. A visual companion piece, if you like, to that vivid Daily Telegraph article. If you Google views taken during cleansing operations, quarantine area, Sydney, 1900, the results will be from the New South Wales State Library website where you can see volumes of these photos. What you'll see are threadbare shanties and lean-tos, filthy outhouses with busted commodes, kitchens that aren't any cleaner, rubble-strewn streets and steam-driven pumps spraying city blocks. There's no doubt that many of these buildings weren't fit for human habitation and that they offered breeding grounds for rats. Yet many residences were also proudly maintained, such as first plague sufferer Arthur Payne's home in the rocks, which Dr. Thompson had noted was neat, clean and tidy. Just as Arthur Payne's home had gone into automatic lockdown and disinfection, now the ongoing viability of quarantine zone buildings would be decided by George McCready and his men. They inspected residences and ordered repairs to be made. Given that many householders were barely scraping by, they often couldn't afford to do this work or didn't have any power to compel their slum landlords to carry it out. So homes, businesses and other buildings were demolished, and the wreckage burned or carted away. In one street alone, some 1,000 tonnes of refuse was removed. Of course, this rendered many families homeless. Dr Thompson also fixed the blame not on the residents, but on years of neglect. His inspectors found the infected quarter had, quote, 
fallen into a deplorable state from long-continued omission of the local authority to execute ample powers to preserve the public health. It wasn't good enough to have sanitation laws, he said. They had to be administered. Instead, successive authorities had been, quote, uninstructed, indifferent, unguided by the routine of an efficient organisation and ungoverned by strict principles of actions. In her 1999 book, Inside the Rocks, The Archaeology of a Neighbourhood, historian Grace Carskins argued that authorities' focus on this area during the plague was merely the extension of how it had been maligned for much of the 1800s. She noted that demolitions had been carried out during the 1890s. Quote, The public mentality and official machinery necessary for resumption and demolition were thus already in place before the outbreaks of bubonic plague in Sydney from 1900. Grace Carskins also pointed out that plague hysteria was out of proportion to other far deadlier and more communicable diseases. For instance, dysentery alone had killed 8,522 people in Sydney in the last quarter of the 19th century. That was an average of 340 a year from a largely preventable illness that really did have its origins in unsanitary living conditions. Yet the colonial government, the Sydney City Council, the Board of Health and other authorities had done next to nothing about the squalor endured by thousands. So while it was the wharves and other workplaces that were the origin of many or most bubonic plague infections, the price was disproportionately paid by the poorest part of Sydney's population. And these were people who'd already borne the brunt of the 1890 maritime strike and the economic depression of the first half of the decade. The self-styled champion of these downtrodden people in 1900 was future Prime Minister Billy Hughes, then the state member whose constituency of Balmain North included Darling Harbour and the Rocks. Billy Hughes was highly critical of the colonial government's response and how it focused on poor residents of these areas whose privacy was invaded and whose possessions were damaged or destroyed by disinfectants. These were people who'd, for instance, work hard to buy a piano to provide their night's entertainment. If it was ruined by acids and rough handling, it couldn't be replaced, and the owners wouldn't be compensated. Residents of the Rocks and Darling Harbour were being further impoverished because they couldn't travel to their jobs outside the quarantine zone. If they couldn't earn, they and their families couldn't eat. On this score, Billy Hughes persuaded Premier Lyon to authorise a payment of six shillings per day per resident for the duration of the lockdown. With these payments in place, Billy Hughes would later recall, although through rose-coloured glasses, that the rocks became a bit of a party zone, with kids playing carefree in streets without traffic, while the menfolk, on their first paid holidays of their working lives, went, of course, to the pub. While lockdown, washdown and knockdown was carried out, and quarantine zones eventually expanded to other parts of the city and to Surrey Hills and Redfern, it was also acknowledged that this program was no longer simply in response to known outbreaks. On the 30th of April, the Sydney Morning Herald reported the work was being done, quote, for the purposes of cleansing, without reference to whether cases of plague have been discovered within the areas or not, and simply because there is a danger that if the work is stopped, the carriers of contagion may congregate and spread the disease among themselves. The work is being reduced to a system, and more as a precautionary measure than otherwise. 
this had to be cold comfort for people whose homes, property and businesses were condemned and destroyed. For all this activity, through March and into early April, officialdom was still yet to get its act together in regard to rat extermination. But Dr Thompson was buoyed by the fact that citizen groups formed committees to do this work and that these organisations soon extended across all council areas. By early April, the Citizens Vigilance Committee was securing the cooperation of households in rat killing and reporting any nuisances or health dangers. Dr Thompson would report that it was this grassroots effort that spurred, or maybe shamed, the powers that be into action as the city approached its 100th case of bubonic plague. Finally, on the 10th of April, rat killing became a priority. Dr Thompson had months ago suggested a bounty. Now it was announced that tuppence per carcass would be paid to anyone delivering dead rodents to a big incinerator at the bottom of Bathurst Street. That payment was enough for dead rats to be delivered at the rate of about 200 a day, yet this wouldn't be enough to make a real dent in the rodent population. So, two weeks later, the bounty was increased to sixpence, and the number of carcasses nearly tripled overnight. One man came many miles from the suburbs with 100 rat tails because he hadn't wanted to carry all of the bodies he'd collected. He was told, though, that he couldn't be paid unless he produced the full rat carcasses. Far more people, though, carried the rat bodies on city trams to the Bathurst Street Rat Destructor. In response to public concern, Dr Thompson announced that dead rat depots would be established at Annandale, Ranwick, Wallara and other suburban locations. Meanwhile, the Waste and Sewerage Board finally did its bit by fumigating the sewers with sulphur. One byproduct of this were fumes leaking into city houses. This was actually interpreted as a good thing because it helped identify where there were broken pipes in the ancient sewer system. There were a lot of problems, with the Board of Health estimating that of the 22,000 houses connected to the old city system, as many as 21,000 had connections that were, quote, improper, imperfect and dangerous. If further evidence was needed that bubonic plague was rat-related rather than arising from inner-city slums in sanitary conditions themselves, this came with an outbreak at Manly in early May. Manly, a seaside town with a population of 3,000, had a single wharf for the commuter and tourists who travelled seven miles to and from Sydney's Circular Quay. All six of Manly's plague cases were closely associated with this wharf, where a captured rat proved to be infected. By the 19th of May 1900, the bubonic plague had infected 240 people in Sydney and the death toll stood at 83, which was a fatality rate of 35%. Of those who died, about one in three had succumbed so quickly they perished before the Board of Health was notified they were even sick. While there had been fears that the quarantine station's 70 hospital beds and 350 beds for contacts would be overwhelmed, this pressure was alleviated when the quarantine period for contacts was reduced from 10 to 5 days. Dr Thompson and his staff carefully recorded every Black Plague case that came before them at the quarantine station, and they also sought details of those who died before the disease was diagnosed. 
Dr Thompson's observations in his report to the New South Wales colonial government provided a close-up view of exactly what sufferers went through. He noted that in the first 12 hours, people went very quickly from feeling perfectly fine to suffering severe illness. Their rapid onset symptoms included rigour, chills, fever, acute headaches, vertigo, back and abdominal pain, and vomiting so profuse it ended with patients ejecting green or bluish bile. A fever of up to 102 degrees Fahrenheit was common, as was elevated heartbeat, soreness of glands, constipation, and diarrhoea. Some patients died at this point of heart failure. Those who survived the first phase suffered more hellish symptoms. They'd often be unable to stand or to speak, and if they could do either, they'd stumble and or slur, seeming to the observer to be very drunk. Fevers would hit 105, their skin would be hot and dry. They wouldn't be able to eat, but would be thirsty. Their eyes were congested, half open or closed. Glands, almost always in the groin, would swell larger and become more painful. Some people during this phase were dull and lethargic, but others were so restless and delirious they had to be restrained. Of those who could talk, many would try to deny they had plague and that everything they were experiencing could be explained away by some trivial other illness. Many sufferers also gave off a peculiar smell. From the third to the fifth or sixth day, temperatures fell and serious patients were unable to move, with some lapsing into muttering delirium while others fell comatose. There were external hemorrhages, the buboes in their groins grew rapidly in size and their skin reddened and then darkened. If someone got severe diarrhoea, that meant the end was near. More than half of deaths occurred between the third and the sixth day. Those who lived beyond that were more likely to recover, with their temperatures falling, buboes able to be lanced or drained or reabsorbing naturally. In the third week, survivors were generally able to be released from quarantine. What Dr. Thompson saw were patients ranging across every degree of severity. Quote, that is to say, from a slight attack of fever which necessitated confinement to bed for two to three days at most, accompanied by such swelling of a single gland as was a cause rather of discomfort than of pain, to an ill-defined attack of malaise on which death supervened after a few hours. Dr Thompson's report to the government detailed numerous individual cases that were horrific precisely for that reason, how quickly people went from healthy to dead. Case 142 was feverish on the 22nd of April and vomited several times. Over the next 36 hours, the patient was feverish, sleepy, dull, and had a tender swelling in the groin. This sufferer died in the 51st hour. Case number 240 had diminished appetite for a couple of days, but was otherwise fine. He went to work as a clerk on the 19th of May, but at midday had to leave the office because he had a fit of what he thought was colic. He was dead by 10 o'clock that night. Case 255 rose at 6am, did his duties as an ostler for the next two hours, made his breakfast, washed and dressed and sat by the kitchen fire. This man was found dead at 9.30am. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. 
Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Before we finish this episode of Forgotten Australia, I'd just like to take a moment to tell you about my new show, Australia on This Day. By subscribing, you'll get a new true story from our fascinating past every single day, with episodes covering everything from true crime, political scandal and media manipulation, to sporting glory, military sacrifice, pioneering women and forgotten Indigenous heroes. Australia on this day is available now, wherever you get your podcasts. Alright, let's get into the final part of The Plague of 1900. From the slow and haphazard start in February through to the end of October, the City Council and the New South Wales Government rat extermination operations, including on-staff rat catchers and public inducements via the bounty system, resulted in an official rat death toll of 108,308. An unknown number, likely thousands more, were killed by fumigation of the sewers. Then there were thousands more killed by private householders, building, steamship and wharf owners. The result of this rat killing, along with sanitation and destruction efforts that denied rats a place to live and breed, had the desired effect, with the infection rate dropping steeply by the end of May. By the 17th of July, sanitation was declared complete and all quarantine zones were lifted. Just over three weeks later, on the 9th of August 1900, the outbreak was over. In all, there'd been 303 cases and 103 deaths in Sydney. Of those cases, men outnumbered women four to one, which was put down to the men working in plague-prone areas, whereas most women at that time remained in the home. The age range of cases was between 2 and 74, but again, it hit working age people hardest, with two-thirds of those infected aged 15 to 45. And as further evidence against person-to-person transmission, 289 cases came from 276 households, with the balance of infected people coming from no fixed address. Given the original fear-mongering about the Chinese quarter near Circular Quay being ground zero for infections, there were just 10 cases from this community. Bubonic plague did hit other Australian colonies in 1900, though none were affected as badly as New South Wales. Queensland had 136 identified cases and 57 deaths. Victoria recorded just 10 cases and only two fatalities. There were three deaths in Western Australia from six cases, while in South Australia there were three probable cases and one possible death. Tasmania alone escaped infection and any fatalities. In the aftermath of the plague of 1900, Dr John Ashburton Thompson delivered his findings to the New South Wales colonial government. The one thing he really tried to hammer home was that plague was caused by fleas from infected rats. He told the government that evidence showed it wasn't communicated from the sick to the well and that it wasn't transmitted via immediate channels such as clothes, household goods and buildings. Dr Thompson reported that evidence showed flea rats had been shown to be specific to localities that were continuous, namely the wharves of eastern Darling Harbour and surrounding neighbourhoods, and that it had been spread mechanically to places like Moore Park's Garbage Tip and Manly Wharf. His report made a lot of recommendations. 
among them was to rely on scientific knowledge and to enforce sanitary laws. All measures, he said, should be taken to exclude rats from the city, and that included fumigating ships when they were empty and rebuilding wharves so they were out over water and denied rats access. But Dr. Thompson was also a realist. His report said, quote, While very much can be done to impede entry of plague rats by the means described, which therefore should be adopted and steadily used, it is evidently unlikely that they can prevent such entry or, in other words, be at all times completely effectual. Failure in connection with a single vessel, even though partial only, the entry of a single plague rat to the rat community ashore is all that is necessary to originate the epizootic of plague. And this is likely to occur. Dr. John Ashburton Thompson was right about that. Between 1900 and 1922, Sydney and other parts of Australia experienced numerous outbreaks of bubonic plague. In all, 1,370 people were infected and 534 people died. Wilfred James Court was born in April 1901 in Western Australia, three months after Federation and nine months after Australia's first bubonic plague outbreak came to an end. Wilfred and his family moved to Sydney, living in Camperdown in Sydney's Inner West. He went to North Newtown Public School and in his teen years he saw Australia horrified by the carnage of the Great War and then by the Spanish Flu and, of course, by sporadic recurrence of bubonic plague. In April 1920, Wilfred got a job as a junior clerk in the New South Wales Government's Bureau of Statistics and Registry of Friendly Societies and Trade Unions. In 1921-1922, Sydney had its last serious outbreak of bubonic plague. 35 people got infected and 10 of these died. By the middle of 1923, though, it had been nearly 12 months since the last infected rat had been found in Sydney. Then, on the 27th of June, 1923, Wilfred James Court, who still lived with his mum and dad in Camperdown, started to feel sick. He was seen by a doctor on the 30th of June, and he died shortly afterwards. Just as Captain Thomas Dudley's people had done in 1900, Wilfred's grieving people put a notice in the Sydney Morning Herald saying his funeral would be held on the 2nd of July. But it wouldn't because post-mortem analysis confirmed that Wilfred had died of bubonic plague. Rat-killing efforts were stepped up, with 500 a week being exterminated and examined in Sydney's Inner West. No infected rat was found and no other cases were reported. The source of Wilfred James Court's infection remained unknown, and he'd be Australia's last confirmed death from bubonic plague. I'm Michael Adams, and you've been listening to Forgotten Australia. If you've enjoyed the show, please leave a rating and review at iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Forgotten Australia will return with a new episode at the start of August. In the meantime, you can get a daily dose of history by subscribing to my other show, Australia on This Day. Forgotten Australia was written and produced by me in the Blue Mountains of New South Wales on land traditionally owned by the Darug and Gundungurra people. As always, thanks for listening. Tired of ads interrupting your gripping investigations? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. 
Ads shouldn't be the scariest thing about true crime. Start listening by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash true crime ad free. That's amazon.com slash true crime ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.